Welcome to The Commercial Disco, the only show dedicated to exploring the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Now over to your host, James Riley. Hello and welcome to The Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley, the Editorial Director of Innovation Oz. Today we're going to be talking to Joanne Cumro. She's the Public Access Deputy Commissioner of the Office of the Victorian Information Commissioner. Joanne has significant experience in all aspects of freedom of information and advising government clients on processing FOI requests and all of the complexity behind archiving, finding and delivering on those laws. We're also talking to Nick Lannan, who's Country Manager for Mimecast, a cybersecurity specialist in email archiving and security. Welcome, Joanne, and welcome, Nick. Thanks, James. It's lovely to be here. Thanks, James. Today, we're going to cover a bunch of stuff, but if there's a theme, we're talking about FOIs, access to public information, managing the the reams of information that large organisations, even small organisations, have to do these days. And I guess in an age where access to information is, you know, it's genuinely, it's probably more important than ever, and yet we're all drowning in it, I, I guess I wanted to, you know, cover some areas of the possibilities of tech and reg tech and automation and, and those kinds of things. I'll start with you, Joanne Kummer from OVIC. I want you to tell me about your role. Why is it important? What are the big trends in relation to information and access to information? Great. Thanks, James. Well, as you said, I'm the Public Access Deputy Commissioner at uh, the Office of the Victorian Information Commissioner. So that's all quite a, a mouthful. But in summary, my role is predominantly to review decisions of government agencies and ministers where they've refused access to information requests made to them for documents. And so there's um, we receive about over 600 reviews, 700 actually in the last financial year on a yearly basis. There are about 2,000 agencies and in Victoria in 2019-2020, there are approximately 40,000 FOI requests received by government agencies in Victoria. So there's a, a very healthy appetite for FOI in Victoria and it's a, um, a widely used mechanism to seek access from information. We also handle complaints at OVIC and that's in relation to the handling by agencies and ministers of FOI requests, whether there's been a delay in making a decision, documents can't be located or they don't exist or other general handling issues. In December 2018, the Information Commissioner also issued professional standards that apply to agencies, everyone from the principal officer, so the secretary of a large department, right down through to FOI officers with which they must comply to sort of ensure best practice in in FOI. I'm fascinated by the metrics involved here, 40,000 FOI applications in Victoria alone. It seems like a giant number, and I'm, I'm assuming that that's a number that grows at a pretty healthy clip. Given that anecdotally, at least, it seems that some departments are struggling to, to keep up with the number of requests, is the FOI system in your state operating as it was intended? 
Well, the Victorian FOI Act was enacted in 1982, so quite some time ago. And what it does provide for is a pool mechanism for receiving access to information. So that means an applicant has to go in and, and actively make a request. And so that's a, really a first-generation type legislation. New South Wales, for example, has what's called a second-generation FOI legislation where it relies on a push model. So more information is has to be made available by government agencies and departments. And so in a, in a modern context and modern government where we anticipate, expect open government and transparency, people are wanting access to more and more information. And so really an, an old model based on a pool model starts to get quite creaky around the joints with so many years that have passed. That doesn't mean that agencies in Victoria can't make information available, but the obligation to do so is not strictly required under the FOI Act. Uh, Nick Lennon, I'm going to bring you into the conversation here as the country manager at Mimecast Company that you know automates and manages and stores and helps dispense you know, massive reams of, of information and email in particular. You deal with lots of different large organisations. You know, in relation to, I guess, FOI in particular, but management of email in particular, what are you, you know, what are you seeing? Yeah, look, it's a really interesting time, I think. What we're seeing is that um, the accumulation and growth of data is exponential. And I think email has been at the core of that for years, for many years, over the last sort of 15 20 years, we've continued to see that growth. But over the last sort of six to 12 months, we've also seen that sort of movement beyond email as communications uh, within organisations and government extend into sort of different communications platforms, such as Teams, such as Zoom that we're on today, into sort of messaging platforms as well. So what role do we play? Well, look, what we're seeing is that the cost of running the requests across huge and growing or exponentially growing sort of volumes of data is becoming extremely extreme burden for layers of government as well as organisations. So they're looking to tools to automate this process. And through that, I guess, through the advance in technology, the ability for organisations to get access to e-discovery platforms, they're now able to aggregate those requests across different types of data, including email and messaging, to then accelerate getting the freedom of information requests presented back in a, in a relatively or in a quicker space of time. But there's still a huge delta that most organizations running these requests are seeing between the cost of search and the cost of discovery and the income that may be generated off the back of, uh, I guess, some of these requests coming through. And, and there's a big opportunity for technology to continue to close that gap. And uh, Joanne Kummer, I wonder how that's impacted the way that your organization looks at this stuff. It seems sometimes there's parallel networks of information, email on the one hand as an official communications tool and WhatsApp on the other as perhaps unofficial. So, you know, how does OVIC look at that kind of dichotomy? Documents under the FOI Act, the definition of document is quite broadly defined. So it can include anything from obviously emails to reports to briefings to WhatsApp messages as long as they're in relation to an agency and in an official context sent by an official person. Also CCTV. So there's a, a very broad category of documents as long as they're in the possession either actual or constructive of the department, that is they've got control over them or they can call for them, then they can be scooped up in an FOI request. But it still remains quite a manual process, I think, for the most part. Nick, the technology that you talk about is 
really will be welcomed. But there is so much information and within government and the need to organise that information, have it classified or valued, you know, as an, as an asset really, good record management and good record keeping lies at the heart of FOI. So your document management system and then knowing agencies and their staff knowing how to interrogate that data and obtain those documents, particularly where they go back for some time and I guess cross over different systems. I mean, we experience agencies that hold quite a lot of data in hard copy still. Now, that may not have been generated in the last year, but it's still a request that's made under the FOI Act. So that always presents as a problem where things are in archive storage, effectively, storage facilities, often out in the suburbs. So it's it's quite curious. So the, the range of data and its accessibility is, is really a significant issue. Costs of FOI are tricky. At OVIC, what we like to see is FOI is a last resort, and we really see this as proactive, informal release of information as being the future of information access, that FOI really should be used as a last resort. Where FOI is good, and this is interesting, I guess, from a technological point of view in terms of AI and decision-making, is weighing up the nuances of information and, and the public interest in release and not release and how one does that through technology. And that's kind of the interesting intersection, I think, in the work that we do is looking at a document and looking at factors for and against release of a document. So one thing is, as I said, record keeping and organisation, then there's being able to find documents and then being able to analyse those and find which ones are relevant and then being able to assess them. I wonder, Nick Lennon, can I I ask you this? I understand there's well, there was a, a wake-up call around the time of the Banking Royal Commission just because there was just so much archival data that needed to be gone through, particularly emails, but lots of archival data of, of all sorts. So that was a wake-up call. I'm just your experience in watching that unfold. And then to Joanne's point just now, the application of AI and machine learning to some of that some of that process seems fascinating. Where does that take us? Yeah, no, they're all really interesting sort of areas of development and uh, some very interesting technology coming to life here. And I sort of absolutely agree with Joanne there that the preparation around discovery is so important in regards to classifying and the time spent classifying based on sort of government and organisational needs before even discovery and uh, I guess the process for retrieval and, and consideration into a sort of a matter or a case can be aligned. We saw with the Royal Banking Commission, we saw the fact that the volume of data being stored and obviously presented challenges and and organizations and law firms use technology to sort of move through that quickly as a means of accelerating the ability to provide decision making. And I think we all felt that just watching the Royal Banking Commission from the outside, just how much data was being interrogated to make some of the decisions that were sort of made throughout that process. So we see the compute power and indexing playing a very significant role in accelerating those workflows. And then specifically to what Joanne said at the end there is that then designing workflows that allow very specific data sets to be presented so that in this case, humans can make decisions around whether that relates to a particular matter or a case uh, is so critical. So the workflow that's been generated so far has been around presenting that data back so that, I guess, humans can sort of make those decisions and, uh, and that the correlation back to that sort of core matter can be, uh, can be decided upon. But there's definitely a big opportunity for the advancement. And what we're seeing now are algorithms that are being presented that can identify samples 
that may more accurately present or in, in a faster manner, but more accurately present data more specific to a type of matter or an FOI case. So this is a real big opportunity. And I think the RegTech scene has grown significantly because we're starting to see indexing on all of the different types of data forms that are now so important. Indexing on audio, indexing on video conversation, video CCTV footage, and some of the content that's coming through sort of these more IoT-led initiatives that government and organizations are having to build into their um, supply chain. So in moving down this path, we've seen the need for organizations to have discovery across these types of data sets as well. Uh, And that leads itself to AI and sort of machine learning to accelerate how do we get to a particular point in time to help make that decision in in a manner that's timely for those organizations. Can I just to follow on from that, like you've introduced a, a, a bunch of new ways of thinking about this stuff. In this country, who's doing this well? I mean, are there pockets of excellence in this country? I don't know if we saw that at the Banking Royal Commission or not. The volumes were vast and we got there in the end, I suppose, but that was a, seemed a torturous process. So who's doing this stuff well? well? I think we're seeing some fairly significant advancements at both industry and government here um, because the cost of not doing it has been seen as such a critical impact to an organisation's success through either reputational damage all through the, I guess, the cost of the discovery process itself. So we are starting to see that a lot of these big data repositories have been centralized onto cloud platforms that allow for this indexing and uh, e-discovery capability to be nearly wrapped around it, as long as that classification and nearly the process of identifying what data is most critical uh, has been done in advance. So we are starting to see this move quite quickly. And in fact, I think the pace of adoption is really accelerating in both industry and government as organizations feel like the risk of a royal commission could jeopardize their success in the future as a result of not taking action. So we've seen demand in sort of archiving and data management services really increase, especially in industries that sort of have either really boomed through the good times and recognize that there might be a risk of those boom times being sort of better understood or on the reverse, where we've seen a a real challenge to how society's operated and a need to get deeper into that understanding of how did that sort of set of systems or processes eventuate and and how does government take closer look at some of those behaviours that have underpinned that industry? I might ask you the same question, Joanne Camero. Where are the pockets of excellence inside the public sector? Who's doing this stuff well? Well, I think um, from my sort of background as a, as a government lawyer and leading a royal commission into family violence down here in Victoria, that was where I was really exposed to large volumes of data, as has been referring to with the Banking Royal Commission. And uh, at present, there's, uh, you know, and in recent years, there's no shortage of royal commissions. Someone I used to work with once said that a royal commission would come up every 10 years. Now they seem to come up every two years. So I think they've certainly driven, Nick's absolutely right, wearing, you know, sort of a a former lawyer's hat that, you know, royal commissions and that need to disclose and discover everything that's relevant. Murphy's Law will be the one document that you can't find is the one that you need to find, the missing link, so to speak. And there's real credibility and integrity issues there if the right information can't be accessed. It also doesn't look good for an organisation, whether they're private, but in particular government, that they're not across their information holdings, that they don't have really an idea of what they've got. So I think definitely, you know, that royal commissions have generated greater awareness and I guess just by necessity, the need to be able to receive and interrogate 
these large volumes of documents. And that's kind of where my experience comes in. Now, how well government is outside of those requirements to do so, I'm not sure. There's obviously a cost that's involved and one really needs to be able to perhaps persuade decision makers with access to budgets within departments to spend money on new IT systems and softwares and processes and training. And we often see even important agencies like police and law enforcement talking about old systems, old technologies, often multiple different ones that they've patched together with bridges to keep them working and keep them connected. And in some cases, those information holdings don't even overlap or connect. So I think modern government is more and more aware of the need for emerging technologies and the benefits that they can bring to facilitating, say, transparency across all levels of government. But in terms of pure technology and the ability to sort of mine information, you know, store it, retrieve it and assess it, I think we've still got a little way, a little way to go. Yeah, we do seem to be playing catch-up in a lot of different areas all of the time. Things are moving so fast. Uh, this is a question for Joanne on this notion of harmonisation. How do you, where you have two jurisdictions sitting right next door to each other that have completely different approaches to the way they handle this situation, what does it mean for the work that you do and where does harmonisation fit into all this? Yeah, well... <laughs> I'm happy to answer it. I mean, I think the answer is I, th- I thought about it uh, prior to today was um, really we live in a, a federal system of government. So as long as you have a Commonwealth, states and territories, they are likely to have their own legislation that governs access to information. But I think there's certainly room and there's certainly work that's being done around the country to try and put together what a model set of policies or procedures would be for seeking access to information? What are the minimum requirements for a good access, providing good access to information? Victoria has an old, an old act, but for the most part, it does the job pretty well. I think what you need is you can have good legislation, but you still need good culture. You need a commitment to transparency. So, I mean, it is interesting because I would say, yes, we're in a federated system, but Let me ask this of you, Nick Lennon. Within our systems of government and even our federation exists in a series of silos and silos within silos, but this is all, you know, in a digital era, we're trying to break that kind of stuff down. So in complex royal commissions, as we've been talking about, we cover a lot of different silos. So a banking royal commission needs to be combining the data pools of vast organisations, whether it's the banks or the or various departments. So how do you coordinate that kind of data collection or data management across jurisdictions, across different laws and across different organisations? It's enough to make you want to throw your hands up and run, isn't it? It's interesting, yeah. I think this is where um, technology is really like the pace of innovation is accelerating. And I say, touch on what Joanne said earlier. So like it is hard and uh, some governments have got data sat in sort of warehouses in the suburbs versus uh, data sat in sort of modern platforms or modern sort of technology sets like what Microsoft is delivering on the other hand, which is really sort of engaged at a government level and are talking about sort of whole of government type contracts. We've seen them talk about the rollout that they have in WA most recently. I think what we're seeing with data and discovery is that 
access to some of these more modern platforms is accessible and that might give some visibility of some types of data. So what we would see is that organizations are able to provide access to those that need discovery relatively easy on these modern platforms because they're set up in a way that makes the data sort of accessible and democratizes the data in many ways. And it's using structure and, and an index on that data that can be given access to those that have got the appropriate rights and permissions. So whilst that might not give access to the absolute sort of forensic information that's being looked for in an e-discovery case or a matter, the ability to get access to the top level that identifies what was the communication history that might have taken place resulting in that particular matter or that particular sort of document being produced is far more accessible now with some of the more modern IT platforms that are being consumed across government and enterprise. Uh, and I do see an opportunity and a sort of a, a growing market demand for connectors between these different data types. And these connectors are allowing sort of email and video and sort of messaging platforms to be sort of searched from a single pane of glass. So a law firm, for instance, could, with the appropriate permissions, they don't need to trundle the, I guess, the boxes through the elevator and the foyer and sort of up to the, uh, I guess, the law firm's lobby anymore. It's far more accessible to give a lawyer that permissions on a sort of a client's data set and, and then use technology to give them access to at least the top level of information that they may need access to, which could help them get to some specific content that might help them solve a particular case or a, or a question. So I do see that accelerating, but definitely agree with Joanne is that it's the archives, it's the history, it's the sort of years and years of data that sat in, uh, I guess, organizations, archives and sort of on paper, on, on sort of manual processes, it's going to take years to sort of, I guess, digitize, but the ability to access what might have led to some of those digital hard paper documents being created is starting to become accessible through email and messaging discovery. An example of that, Nick, that I've seen is um, the Public Records Office in Victoria has a big digitisation project going on and digitising records, personal records, prison records, wills, uh, coronial inquest documents, just absolutely fascinating with all of the, you know, watermarks and the old handwriting and you really sort of see those those documents come come to life but those sort of projects are really massive but ever so important also in victoria james i just recalled sort of from a modern context uh, data registers there are um, examples like data.vic.gov.au that are repositories of government data that can be accessed by anyone obviously they're de-identified data sets can be used by the public and private sector for public benefits so slowly slowly you are getting more access to information because I guess Nick what you're talking about too is accessing existing data the access to data that's being created now whether it's in real time you know cctv or recordings and i think about parliament being live streamed council meetings working from home in victoria i was watching the hotel quarantine inquiry live you know just streaming it from the tv so we've also got public engagement platforms and even just government websites you know there is a lot i'm not suggesting there's not a lot of data out there there are pockets of it and repositories of it but there's not really always an overall concept of i think what we kind of call transparency by design so if you're creating something now in government thinking about transparency and how do you provide provide access to the information how are you creating information how are you storing it how can you retrieve it and how you can actually um, interrogate it 
All right. Sounds like there's a uh, huge opportunity for many years to come in the uh, in the management of uh, of these vast reams of data. So when it comes to creating and keeping records, are we starting to see a bit of a cultural shift here where people now understand that if you don't want to see an email that you've written on the front page of The Age or the Sydney Morning Herald, then you just simply don't write it. Is that starting to sink in in the way people are more conscious of the tech advanced business communications tools bring with them certain responsibilities? It's an interesting one because we only see data that's been captured. So the assumption is with email that if it's been sent, we've got a copy of it. And, and in fact, we definitely see organizations being very aware of that in sort of the, what Joanne was alluding to earlier, knowing that the capture of that email data is fundamental to even periods like what we've just been through, where you've had furloughed staff, where you've had change. And as a result, the business's IP has been lost through those personnel changes. So the way to get access to that is turn on the technology or get access to the technology that's maintained that history. So we definitely see we see awareness of the fact that email and messaging data is being captured, leading to potentially people using it outside of it. But that's where I really do think what Joanne was alluding to around transparency by design and sort of the policy around it is so important. I think from our side of things, we, we, we're seeing that regardless the sort of, I guess, the chain of events to get to a decision that is so clearly understood from email, even if the technology, even if the conversation didn't take place on email, the sort of substance around what might have taken place was recorded to then allude to a point in time when something that wasn't caught on a sort of a forensic attention system might have happened. So we might know that there was a series of events that led to someone potentially sending something on WhatsApp because there's a conversation history that alluded to that there's a missing piece of data that might have taken place at that point in time. But without knowing exactly what that is, it's very hard to sort of identify it. So we are seeing policy sort of drive that. But I don't know if that answers the question there, Corey. It is is super complicated. I mean, when you've got, look, everyone using end-to-end encryption as a parallel kind of universe, if you like, even, you know, journos to politicians and journos to senior public servants, all that kind of thing. It does, uh, you know, it kind of begs the question about what the, you know, what the fundamental record of truth is. In certain industries, you see algorithms that are starting to pick up on behavioural trends. And I think this is where the world's going, is that um, if there's a a way people were conversing or a, a style of language that was being used at a point in time, that you can now start to take some algorithms to trend. Could something have taken place or could the content here actually be relating to different matters? And that's where I see sort of an advancement of these types of um, behavioural analytics components being overlaid against sort of the retention of data that then starts to identify that actually the the behavior that might have taken place at this point in time isn't normal and might need to be sort of looked at or investigated further. That's definitely taking place in sectors like finance, where they really are looking to correlate language before and after transactions to try and paint a clearer picture. If, for instance, some of the information that was needed to review a case wasn't found or wasn't there, that that's starting to give some sort of early warning to the fact that an incident might have taken place. So we see that on one sector. I think it's very different in finance compared to other sort of industry groups, but it's definitely uh, a way technology and AI machine learning is then being used to interrogate data for more than just the content. 
Well, look, I think we're going to leave it there, Joanne Comrade, the Public Access Deputy Commissioner from OVIC. Thank you very much for joining us. It sounds like your job is going to get more complex, not less complex, and it's going to get bigger, not smaller. So good luck with that. And Nick Lennon, Country Manager for Mindcast, thanks very much for your insights here today. Thank you, James. Thanks, James. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Commercial Disco. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And head on over to our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our latest news and reviews focused on tech, innovation and policy. And reach out on our social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show. Until the next time, this is the Commercial Disco... Wishing you a great week ahead.